The scripture reading from Amos 5, 18-24 Alas for you who desire the day of the Lord! Why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light, as if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear, or went into the house and rested a hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake. Is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your hearts. But lest justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You know, I gotta be honest with you. It feels like it's almost impossible to write a sermon these days. Now, it's not because there's a shortage of things to talk about, of course, but it's because there's almost too much to talk about. I mean, in general, the point of a sermon is to take the Word of God and put it into a context for the community where it is in a specific place and time and to show how God is speaking through that scripture to the community there and then, but oh, wow, uh, the context surrounding this community has changed so much this week, to say nothing of this month or this year. And, and I have to say, for me at least, this year has been exhausting. From COVID to children in cages, forced sterilizations to extremists on the Supreme Court, corruption in government, <laughs> to say nothing of the mirroring corruption that has sprung up in institutions and organizations around us who having seen that it's okay nationally, feel that it must be okay locally, and then going on to the corruption of our own souls as in response to these horrors, we're all too often moved to respond with equal brutality, equal malice, equal cruelty. Uh, all of this has been going on as we've been surrounded by a myriad collection of other terrors, police aggression, racism, state-sponsored murder, immigrants just being disappeared. It, it never just se it just never seems to stop. And running through it all, there's been this one thing that just seems to be constant throughout. Christians, or at least people who claim to be Christians, loudly and publicly praising the name of the Lord, praying on the street corners in front of polling stations, and at pulpits broadcast on national television to the entire world. 
whether it's praise music from some worship service or crowds gathered in some kind of church or preachers declaiming loudly or just groups of people with their hands raised as visible and public symbol of faith in action, it seems like the, the, the underscore of this whole year has been this sort of maniacally demonstrative Christianity. Now, many of us, indeed far more than I would ever hope to be true, many of us have been personally, emotionally, even spiritually hurt by the church in our lives. And, and though I'm a pastor myself, standing here in, in a way representing that universal church, I'm no exception to that. I know that hurt personally and in my own life. I know what it feels like when the people of God rise up and tell you that you're not welcome, that you're not wanted, that they just don't stand with you. They stand against you. I know what it feels like, and it hurts. And the intellectual part of you says that it shouldn't hurt. It, 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 you try to rationalize it away as uh, it's cultism. Or maybe you try to dismiss God and religion as an entirely irrational belief system. Anything you can think of that'll take the edge off of that social hurt. Something that'll soften the pain by not making it about you, but about them. And it can't be that in their heart of hearts, they hate me. But they do. Because for one reason or another, you found yourself outside of what that particular group considers to be Christian. One of the biggest challenges that faces the Christian faith today is the same thing today as it was a thousand years ago. Separating our identity as Christians from our place in the culture. For centuries upon centuries, Christians the world over have softened or even revoked their national allegiances by insisting that above and beyond any national or racial identity, that they were first and foremost members of the church universal, and it is to that identity that they first give their allegiance. And it's a great idea. And if I'm being honest, it's one that I've preached on many times before myself. But in this last year, I've sat with many of you and watched how this Christian identity, maybe even more so than the American identity, has come to define a people who are deliberately dismissive, publicly callous, and demonstratively cruel. I remember sitting at the computer just a few nights ago watching as teams of volunteers dispatched from purportedly Christian mega churches, I kind of love that word, as they gathered around polling stations as publicly and visibly as possible, praying and calling upon the name of the Lord with their hands raised. And as they stood on the sidewalks loudly and proudly for all the world to see, I found myself recalling the words of Matthew chapter 6. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. 
But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And I remember thinking over this, thinking to myself, just who in the hell do these people think they are? Don't they know that for all of their talk about what God supposedly hates, that what God truly despises is hypocrites who praise God's name in public but curse those who God loves in private? Don't they know that our faith is meant to be defined by quiet obedience, a nearly invisible love that reshapes the world with a whisper? They, they can't possibly be Christian. No, not really. But in that moment, like a ton of bricks dropped by a wildly cackling Holy Spirit, it hit me. This, this right here is the problem. The antidote to nationalism isn't Christocentrism. You can't just replace fidelity to your identity as a member of a race, a nation, or a people with fidelity to your identity as a member of the Christian community and just expect things to magically be better. You can't change out rock music for praise music, swap your flags for crosses and your courthouses for councils, swap your presidents for pastors, and just dust off your palms like the work's done. God doesn't hate your festivals because God has very particular taste in music. God doesn't despise solemn assemblies because God is a staunch opponent of bureaucracy and organization. These festivals and assemblies we're talking about, they're the things of group identity. And when you define yourself by your fidelity to a group of people, you immediately identify everyone else as something different, as something other. And this fact, this nature, does not change when the group that you have your fidelity to is Christianity. It's no coincidence that many of us, most of us, have stories of encountering people of different faiths, or no faith at all, who embody the teachings of Christ far better than any Christian we've ever met. For me, that person is my father-in-law, the perfect model of the traditional Japanese businessman, but who didn't so much as blink at his daughter marrying some weird, out-of-shape foreigner, who was, oh, he was always the first to open his home when we came to town, and he always looks for ways to help and to be a part of not only our lives, but those of his grandkids, despite generations of cultural pressure telling him that that's not how it should be. I'm sure you probably have someone like that in your own life, and if you don't, I'll bet you anything it's coming along soon enough. But whoever that person or people might be in your life, that piece of dissonance is there. People who walk the walk, but don't ever think about talking the talk or even joining the team in the first place. Over two centuries and more of existence, the Church of Christ has produced creeds and confessions, traditions, practices, forms, and rituals, all of which we have used to define who we are and who we are not. Our very first church councils, the great gatherings of the faithful in Nicaea, Chalcedon, Constantinople, and others, they were all about definition, 
figuring out what, and more importantly, who, is and is not Christian. Identifying the in-group, just so that we could also identify and expel the appropriate out-group. This is quite arguably the oldest institutional practice of the Christian religion. Unless you think I'm singling out the old folks, for every ancient creed, you can find a modern church making similar claims. You're not really Christian unless your pastor skips the robe for a t-shirt and jeans. You're not really Christian unless you raise your hands when the praise band hits the bridge. You're not really Christian unless you hate who we tell you to hate and make sure to tithe your 10% along the way. You're not really Christian unless you're voting for Trump out there on the street corners, praying as loudly and visibly as you can, because you got to save them souls, am I right? But, uh, God isn't like that. Not in the Old Testament, and definitely not in the New. We're so quick to follow the Great Commission that we forget that it isn't actually the greatest commandment. God doesn't care if we're part of the in-group or not. God only cares if we love. Now, if you're catching this at least semi-live or on video and you're not listening through the podcast channel lately, you've probably noticed that the service we put together this week, it doesn't have any music, it doesn't have any praise or psalms, and it really just has the one prayer at the end. Now, this isn't because these things are unimportant in the life of the church. It's not because they're without meaning. And it isn't because they serve no purpose beyond, I don't know, entertainment. Music and praise and liturgy, they all have tremendous utility. Our words and our actions in the time and place of public worship are incredibly meaningful, but they're scaffolding. Their meaning is inherent to us. Their utility is only for us. God could not possibly care less. Our songs, our liturgical presentation, our structures, our churches, our very identity as part of this Christian community, all of it is there as an aid to help us follow Christ. But Christ doesn't call us to his side just so that we can call ourselves Christian, pat ourselves on the back for choosing the right team. We're not meant to be part of the in-group because there isn't meant to be an in-group in the first place. When we stand in public begging for the coming of the day of the Lord, we're like someone running away from a lion only to trip and fall into a surprise bear attack. When we spend our time focused on what it means to be part of the Christian in-group, all we're doing is reskinning our nationalism, redressing our tribalism, and repeating the same sinful human mistakes over and over and over again. Thing is, God is not calling us to identify as Christian, either publicly or privately. The fruits of the Spirit aren't orthodoxy, socially appropriate piety, public prayer, and saying the right magic words at the right place and time so we don't go to hell. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, all in service to a God who only asks that you love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's what it means to follow Christ. There's no public declaration. 
no quota for proselytization, no specific prayer that you absolutely 100% totally need to pray, no church you must specifically attend, no group or prayer group or Bible study that you have to be a part of. I mean, sure, we have those things, but they're all pointed at making it easier for us to love and easier for us to organize together as a people to do love on a greater scale than any of us could ever do individually. They are not the thing that defines us. Christianity isn't a group to join, an identity to have, or a kingdom to be a part of to the exclusion of all else, not in the way that we understand those things anyway. And when you realize that love, real Christian love, requires there to be no in-group, you find out that there's no out-group either. And then you realize there's no one to hate either. And that's a revelation that runs deep for a lot of us, deeper than you might think when you really put your mind to it. When fairly well-known Christian theologian and noted author of children's books, C.S. Lewis, brought his thinly-veiled allegory of the, the world of Narnia to its inevitable revelation-themed conclusion, his explanation of the great heavenly kingdom of Aslan, who, for those of you who don't know, is the Jesus allegory in this story. When he brought it to this great heavenly kingdom, the way he painted it didn't involve so much great heavenly hosts or the public singing of the hallelujah chorus or the heroes of the place being crowned into magnificence and glory forever and ever, amen and amen, while the outsiders fall into the outer darkness where there's weeping of gnashing of teeth? No. Instead, it focused on the main characters of the story coming across a follower of the demon god Tash. And this follower is sitting completely confused in heaven, wondering how in the name of all that is good he could have possibly wound up where he was, having not only never professed his faith in Aslan, but having actively opposed Aslan and his people for his entire life. Now, in response to this man's quite understandable confusion, Aslan, again, our Jesus figure, tells the man this, and I'm going to quote from the book here. I take to me the services which thou hast done to him, for I and he are of such different kinds that no service which is vile can be done to me, and none which is not vile can be done to him. Therefore, if any man swear by Tash and keep his oath, for the oath's sake it is by me that he has truly sworn, though he know it not, and it is I who truly reward him. And if any man do a cruelty in my name, then, though he says the name Aslan, it is Tash whom he serves, and by Tash his deed is accepted. In this one moment, in the midst of the fiery end of a children's story, C.S. Lewis hits the nail on the head. It was never about identity, not about the group you joined. Non-Christians are perfectly capable of being wholly and completely Christian, just as Christians can be, and indeed all too often are lately, wholly and entirely cruel. It doesn't matter what you call yourself, because the God of love goes beyond the tribalism that's hardwired into our little monkey brains. 
It was never about joining the right denomination or joining the right church. It was never about serving the right people in the right ways while ignoring or hating the wrong people in the wrong ways. It was never about aligning yourself with the in-group because our God isn't the God of any one particular group. God is bigger than that. God is about love, about doing love, about being love to all people and most especially to those in need. Those who are poor, those who are oppressed, those who suffer, and those who are left out. If that's where you are, if you are in a place where your heart and your mind and your soul are set on caring for the least of these, welcoming the immigrant and the stranger, visiting the prisoner, feeding the hungry, uplifting the oppressed, freeing the enslaved, and seeing that there is more love in the world today than there was yesterday, then you are with God and God is with you. The rest is just flavor text. Earlier this week, a friend of mine who was watching the efforts of those who call themselves Christian in and around this election asked me with all earnestness, do you ever wonder if we're the ones who are wrong? If by taking this more liberal understanding of God, maybe, maybe we picked the wrong side. I grew up conservative myself, so I, I really understand that worry. I, I feel it. And that's why I take a lot of comfort in today's passage, because the message is simple. Do not be afraid. Don't worry. Our God isn't a God of sides. So long as you are going out into this world, acting in love, taking active steps to make certain that there is more love out there and working in the world today than yesterday, so long as you have your heart and your mind and your soul and your hands and your feet set on caring for people with the love of God, then you don't need to worry about whether you pick the right team or not. Because God doesn't care. God isn't this church or that church. God isn't this practice or that practice. God is patient. God is kind. God is not boastful or arrogant or rude. God does not insist on God's own way and is not irritable or resentful. God does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. God never ends because God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Let's go and do likewise.